0: Please be seated and let's welcome Father Brennan Manning. Thank you. In the words of Francis of Assisi, when he met Brother Dominic on the road to Umbria. Hi. I uh, I live in New Orleans. And just before I left, a friend told me about a Cajun who was standing out in a huge vegetable patch with a hoe. And a man came running up to him and yelled, Richard, Richard, come quick, your house is on fire. Richard dropped his hoe and went running lickety-split down the road. Then he stopped. He paused. And he thought, I don't own a house and my name ain't Richard. Just... That moment of pausing and reflecting changed the whole direction of his journey. And that's what we're about here today, just a time to reflect on our core identity. (laughs) I've got a good friend in Denver. He's a former pro basketball player. And he's got a handicapped son. And one night, he asked him, Daniel, when you see Jesus looking at you, What do you see in his eyes? And after a pause, the boy replied, his eyes are filled with tears, Dad. Why, Dan? Even longer pause, because he's sad. His father asked him, why is Jesus sad? Daniel stared at the floor for a long time. When he finally looked up, his eyes glistened with tears. He said, Jesus is sad because I'm afraid. The sorrow of Jesus lies in our fear of him, our fear of life, our fear of ourselves. The sorrow of Jesus lies in our self-absorption. Richard Foster wrote, today the heart of Christ is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we don't draw close to him. He grieves that we've forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. I have not asked a Christian in 30 years, do you know that God loves you? He's not replied, oh yes, I know that. And 99% don't know it, except in some vague, distant, abstract way. They'd be hard pressed to say that right now, the essence of their Christian life is a love affair. Not just a simple love affair, but a furious love affair going on between God and themselves at this very moment. You know, it's one thing to feel loved by God when we're moving securely in the fast lane, when our life is together, when all our support systems are in place, place, when our person, our career, our ministry, our esteem within community, when we feel covered with grace, at moments like that, self-acceptance comes relatively easy. We might even claim with a small measure of pride that we're actually starting to like ourselves. There's a felt sense of inner security that crystallizes when we're strong, on top, unafraid, invulnerable, in control of every situation, and as the Irish like to say, in fine form. (coughs) But tell me what happens to you when your life falls through the cracks, when sin and failure scar your soul, when your dreams are shattered, when your plans have failed, when you're regarded with suspicion, when you're covered with shame and confusion, when you sink deeper and deeper into despondency, when you come to rest on the basic stuff of the human condition. Ask anyone who's flunked out of school, gone through a separation, a divorce, or bankruptcy. Ask them, do you still feel altogether? together? Is that sense of insecurity still intact? Do you still have a strong sense of self-worth? Do you still know you're the beloved child of the Father? Or does your God love you in your goodness and not in your brokenness and your failure as well? And that is what desperately needs to be accepted. Our brokenness, and it's what most of us tend to reject, and it's where the seeds of a corrosive self-hatred start to take root. The 14th century mystic, Julian of Norwich, said, Our courteous Lord does not want his servants to despair because they fall often and grievously, for our falling does not hinder him in lovingness. As we begin this three-day journey in faith, God calls every one of us to come out of hiding and run to him. Remember in Luke 15 how God ran to his prodigal son when he came limping home? God weeps when shame and self-hatred render us immobile. And as soon as we lose our nerve, we start to take cover. Adam and Eve hid, and we've all used them in one way or another as role models. Why? Because when we look in the mirror, we obviously don't like what we see. It is uncomfortable, if not intolerable, to confront our true selves. And so, like runaway slaves, we either flee our own reality or manufacture a false self that is mostly admirable, mildly prepossessing, and superficially happy. We hide what we know and feel ourselves to be, which we assume is unlovable, unlikable, behind some appearance that's going to be more pleasing to our public. We put on that pretty face and eventually forget we're hiding, and we think the assumed pretty face is who we really are. But what G.K. Chesterton called the furious love of God, bodied forth in Jesus of Nazareth, is proclaimed to who you really are, whether you like that self or not. And the call of God is the same call to Adam to come out of hiding and no way of making ourselves presentable by any kind of spiritual makeup. As the Trappist monk Thomas Merton said, the reason most of us never enter into the deepest reality of our relationship with Jesus is that we so seldom acknowledge our utter nothingness before him. This morning, if Jesus Christ says, come to me, not to church, not to a Bible study, not to chapel, but come to me. And don't wait till you've got your your head on straight, you act cleaned up, you're free of sin, confirmed in grace, and feeling benevolent toward yourself. But come now, skeptical, cynical, wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, crippled with fear, bowed with shame and tilting toward despair, and I'll meet you where you are and love you as you are, not as you should be, because you're never gonna be as you should be. Let me be who I am, Jesus says. Acknowledge me as a savior of boundless compassion, infinite patience, unbearable forgiveness, and a love that keeps no score of your wrongdoings Jesus says, quit projecting onto me your own negative feelings toward yourself. If this moment your life is a bruise for you, I'm not gonna crush it. If it's a smoldering wick, I'm not gonna question it. You know, as I travel the country speaking in a wide ecumenical setting, maybe 10 to 12 college campuses, uh, evangelical schools every year, the most shocking contradiction I find among young people in the American church is the intense dislike they have for themselves. They are more displeased, impatient, irritated, unforgiving, and spiteful with themselves than they ever dream of being with somebody else. They're fed up with themselves, sick of their own mediocrity, disgusted by their own inconsistency, bored by their own monotony, and they would never judge anybody else with the savage self-condemnation with which they crush themselves. (coughs) Last June, I was up in uh, Vermont doing a retreat with uh, the old Christian psychologist, David Siemens. In one of his talks, he said, many young Christians find themselves defeated by the most powerful psychological weapon that Satan uses against them. This weapon, he said, is the effectiveness of a deadly missile. Its name, low self-esteem. Siemens said Satan's greatest psychological weapon is a gut feeling of inferiority, inadequacy, and low self-worth. He said this feeling shackles many Christians, both young and old, in spite of their wonderful spiritual experiences, their knowledge of God, God's word. And although they know they are sons and daughters of God, they're still tied up in knots, bound by a terrible feeling of inferiority and chained to a deep sense of worthlessness. What I'm driving at in this opening talk is this. It is only through an intimate, heartfelt knowledge of Jesus as the son of compassion that we learn to be gentle with ourselves in our brokenness. Only to the extent that we allow the relentless tenderness of Jesus to invade the mighty citadel of our ego, to that extent we're freed from that sickness that follows us everywhere we go, the self-hate that most of us aren't even ashamed of. You really don't know the Christ of God unless you change your attitude about yourself and take sides with Jesus against your own self-evaluation. It's been four years since I've been at Westmont. And about a year after I left here, my life fell apart. So I went off to take a very significant step on my own inward journey. I went out to the Colorado Rockies and I made something for 20 days called the Intensive. It was a retreat combining silence, solitude, and therapy. Every morning I'd drive into Denver 37 miles away to meet with a Christian therapist who guided me in getting in touch, touch with repressed memories and feelings from childhood. Then i drive back to the cabin in the Rockies, I spent the whole day alone, no TV, no radio, no reading material of any kind, even the Bible, because he used to escape into the Bible. Well, as the days passed in the cabin, I discovered that I'd not been able to feel anything since I was eight years old. A traumatic experience when I was eight, it was a brutal beating from my mother in the afternoon, then a savage beating from my father that night, it shut down my memory for the next nine years. I can't remember anything in my life between age, age age 17. And shut down my feelings for the next 50 years. And at the age of eight, what I call the imposter, where the false self was born as a defense mechanism against pain. The imposter within whispered Brennan, don't be your real self anymore, because nobody likes you, even your parents. Here's what you do. Invent a new self that everybody's going to admire, and nobody's going to know. And that's exactly what I did. I became a good boy, polite, well-mannered, unobtrusive, deferential toward authority, unfeeling. I studied hard, scored excellent grades, won a scholarship to high school, and was stalked every waking moment by the terror of abandonment, the inchoate feeling that there is nobody there for me. But what I did discover was that perfect performance was the key that unlocked the door to getting my needs for attention and approval fulfilled. I orbited into a non-feeling zone to keep fear and shame at a safe distance. As my therapist remarked one morning, Brennan, all these years, has been a steel-trap door covering your emotions and denying you access to them. But all the while, my imposter presented himself to the world as nonchalant, carefree. How you doing, Brennan? Terrific. Dynamite. Frisky. Feeling fantastic. Praise God. And what I really wanted to say was I'm lonely, I'm frightened, I'm empty and I'm tilting toward despair. This great divorce between my head and my heart has endured throughout my ministry. For the last 23 years, I've roamed the country, led to the world, as a vagabond evangelist, proclaiming the good news of God's unconditional love, absolutely convicted of what I'm saying, the truth of what I'm saying in my head, but never once feeling it in my heart. Around this country, I've been lionized, emulated, imitated, praised, quoted, but I've never once felt loved. A scene from the movie Postcards from the Edge says it all. A Hollywood film star played by Meryl Streep is told by a director played by uh, Jack Nicholson what an incredible, fantastic, unbelievable, wonderful life she's had. And how every woman in the country would envy her accomplishments. And Streep says, yeah, yeah, I know. But you know what? I can't feel my life. Don't you understand? I can't feel any of the good things that have ever happened to me. It was on the tenth day of this retreat. I was just beginning to mourn my uh, insensitivity. I noticed for the first time in over 30 years tears rolling down my cheeks. And that erupted into uncontrolled sobbing. Sometimes those breakdowns lead to breakthroughs. And as I was just draining the cup of grief, this remarkable thing happened. Somewhere outside the cabin, I heard music and dancing. I was startled. I got up, looked down the road, up the mountain. There's a huge oak tree with its arms extended. Like in a welcoming gesture, I knew what was going on. I was the prodigal son. I wasn't reading this in Luke 15 as a spectator. I was a participant. And the blessing withheld by my primary caretakers, my mother and father, was now located in its primordial source, in the love of my Heavenly Father. From the time I've been a kid, I have never felt safe with God unless I performed flawlessly. And my need to be perfect has transcended my desire for God. I've been locked into this sinner or saint mentality, this all or nothing mindset. I've interpreted weakness in my life as mediocrity, inconsistency, as a loss of nerve. And the consciousness that I've sold out for small comforts along the way that have now become indispensable, that I've made small compromises that are now irreversible, has been a source of profound distress. A compassionate attitude toward myself was simply unacceptable. And my jaded perception of my own personal failures has led to a loss of self esteem and triggered mild anxiety, mild episodes rather, of depression and anxiety. Unwittingly, what I'd been doing was projecting onto Jesus my own feelings about myself. I only felt safe with him when I was unscarred, unshaken, fearless, tearless, my face set like flint in the gospel, when I was walking the way of integrity, when I was high-minded, noble. I only felt safe with Jesus when I was perfect. But on that radiant morning in the Colorado Rockies, I came out of hiding. Jesus removed the shroud the mask of perfectionist performance that I placed on the face of my Heavenly Father. And I went running, stumbling down that road, up that mountain toward the oak tree, scarred, sinful, forgiven, free, knowing for the first time in my life that there was somebody there for me, gripped in the depth of my soul, the tears just washing down all over my clothes. I was given the grace to internalize, to feel, Every word I've ever written and spoken about the wild, furious, furious passionate, pursuing, stubborn, tender love of God, given the grace to understand all the words are straw compared to the reality. That morning I moved from being the preacher about God's love to being the object of God's delight. And I said goodbye to feeling frightened and said hello to feeling safe. And then the great revelation in those 20 days was praying over this passage in chapter 5 of Ephesians, where Paul says, The things which are done in secret are things that people are ashamed even to speak of. But anything exposed by the light will be illuminated, and anything illuminated turns into light. My friends, here is Revelation bright as the evening star. Jesus not only forgives and forgets the shameful deeds of our past, but he even turns their darkness into light. That's why St. Augustine commenting on Paul could say, All things work together for the good of those who love God, even our sins. And Augustine sa- insisted, even sin serves. Thornton Wilder, back in the 1940s, wrote a marvelous one-act play called The Angel of the Troubled the Waters, based on chapter 5. John's Gospel, you know the scene where the angel comes to the pool of Bethesda, stirs the waters, first person gets killed, uh, gets healed rather? Well, in Wilder's play, there's a medical doctor, a physician who comes every morning before dawn, wanting to be first in line to be healed of his melancholy, his shame, and his intense feelings of guilt. One morning, the angel finally appears. The doctor goes to step in the water. The angel blocks his entrance and says, Step back, this moment is not for you. The doctor is stunned. He starts to sob. He says to the angel, I can't live this way. I can't bear the melancholy, the grief, the guilt, the shame. You've got to let me in the pool. The angel insists the healing is not meant for him. Well, the dialogue between the two of them continues until the prophetic word comes from the angel. Without your wounds, where would your power be? Tell me, doctor, without your wounds, where would your power be? It is your melancholy that makes your low voice tremble into the hearts of men and women. The very angels themselves cannot persuade the wretched and blundering children of this earth as can one human being broken on the wheels of living. In love service, only wounded soldiers can serve. Do you hear me? In love service, only wounded soldiers can serve. Well, as the play continues, the guy who got in the pool first and got healed rejoices, but then quickly turns to the doctor and says, please come with me. It's only an hour to my home. My son is lost in dark thoughts. My wife and I can't reach him. It's only an hour, please. There's also my daughter. Since her baby died, she sits in the shadow. She is inconsolable. Her mother and I don't understand her. You're the only one who's ever lifted her mood. What is all this saying? If you continue to remain in hiding, you continue to live a lie denying the reality of your brokenness and your sinful situation. In trying to erase the broken syllables in the paragraph of our past lives, we deprive the community of our healing gift. To conceal our wounds out of fear and shame assures the inner darkness can never be illuminated or become a beacon of light for others. My sacred word for 1996 is wholeness is brokenness owned and thereby healed. Wholeness is brokenness owned and thereby healed. Bonhoeffer said we made an idol out of guilt we cling to our bad feelings, we beat ourselves up with our past. When he says what we should do, like the thrice-denying Peter, who denied know knowing the one man who loved the most, we should let go of our guilt and dare, dare to live as forgiven men and forgiven women. And when we do that, we join that humble, hearty band of wounded healers and draw close to Jesus of Nazareth. As you know, if you've read Henry Nouwen, the theme of the wounded healer is that all grace, all light, all healing are communicated through the humanness, the brokenness, the vulnerability of men and women who have been bent, fractured, heartbroken, shipwrecked on the wheels of living. In love service, only wounded soldiers can serve. As many of you know, I'm a recovering alcoholic. And I find often my deepest experience of church in Alcoholics Anonymous Because everybody who comes to the meeting knows they've made a slobbering mess out of their life. Everybody there has come out of hiding. Every man and woman acknowledges their wounds. They keep them visible. And the wounds are used to illuminate and stabilize their own lives. And Alcoholics Anonymous is the most effective, according to Scott Peck, the most effective healing community in the history of the United States. Graphically illustrating the power of wounds when used creatively to lighten the burden and to carry the pain of another person. Rainer Maria Rilke used to write letters to a 23-year-old aspiring poet. In one letter he wrote, young man, do not believe that he who seeks to comfort you, meaning himself, lives untroubled among the simple and quiet words uh, that sometimes do you good. My life has much difficulty and sadness remains far behind yours. Were it not so, I could never find the words that bring you such comfort. Rilke is saying his own wounds, his own pain, his own sadness, make him aware of his inner poverty and create the empty space in which Jesus can pour his healing power. Rilke is simply echoing the cry of Paul, I'm going to boast of my brokenness. I'm going to boast of my weakness that the power of Christ may dwell upon me. What my own sacred journey of the past four years since I was last at Westminster taught me is this, I'm only safe with Jesus when I feel safe with myself. And when I trust that Abba who ran to his wayward son and never asked any questions, when I am the prodigal coming home, then in the core of my own being, I can accept my brokenness as being proper to the human condition, uh, an integral part of God's plan for my life. Boy did C.S. Lewis capture the dynamism and brokenness when he wrote, that salvation might not consist in canceling the moments of sin in our lives, but in the perfect humility that bears the shame forever, rejoicing that we furnish God an opportunity to show his mercy, and glad that our sin is common knowledge to others. The decision to come out of hiding is our initiation rite into the healing ministry of Jesus Christ, and it brings its own reward. We stand in the truth that sets us free. We live out of the reality that makes us whole. Folks who read my books will often go to the notes at the end and say, God, Brennan, you must read 10 million books. Like in a ragamuffin gospel, you quoted 73 other authors. Outside of the Bible, what's one of the 10 best books you ever read? And one of them is a book that I read in 1957 and I read it every year. I've read it every year since in the month of December. It's a book by Georges Bernanos, a Frenchman, and it's called The Diary of a Country Priest. And this young priest has struggled all his life with doubt, fear, anxiety, insecurity, shame, and self-hatred. On the morning he dies, his last entry in his journal is this. It's all over now. The strange mistrust I had of myself has flown away, I believe, forever. That conflict is done. At last I am reconciled to this poor, poor shell of me. How easy it is to hate oneself. True grace lies in forgetting. If only pride could die in us, the supreme grace would be to love oneself in all simplicity as one would love any other member of the body of Christ and his last words are but does it really matter tut grace, grace is everywhere would you gently close your eyes join me in prayer in unselfconscious freedom tune out everybody else around you And to use that old Quaker phrase, center down, sink into the center of your soul, become aware of the presence of the indwelling Christ, recall his word, make your home in me as I make mine in you, abide in me as I abide in you. Now don't think anything, don't intend anything, don't promise to perform anything. Just grow still and let yourself be loved as you are and not as you should be. Like slipping into a tub of hot water, let the love of Jesus seep in, saturate, permeate, penetrate every part of you. It's one thing to understand cognitively that he loves you. Quite another thing to realize it, to experience it, to be in conscious communion with it. for a moment slip your hand into the hand of Jesus and walk back with him down memory lane. Recall those sacred scenes from your past, the day you met Jesus, the day you fell in love, the day you were rescued from danger, the day you enrolled at Westmont, an extraordinary encounter with a friend. Moments of personal failure when to your utter amazement you discovered the grace of God dynamically at work. Just grow still and give thanks for the faithfulness of Jesus, for the grace of God throughout your journey. Before you put your head in the pillow tonight, I'd ask you to spend a few minutes alone with Psalm 103. And tomorrow morning for morning prayer, Isaiah 43, one through seven. Night prayer tonight, Psalm 103. Morning prayer tomorrow, Isaiah 43, one through seven. I'd like to close with a blessing written by my spiritual director in New Orleans, Larry Hine. May all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness, that you may experience the powerlessness and poverty of a child, and sing and dance in the love of God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. Amen.